0: The Lord be with you. And with Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we beseech Thee, in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to release Thy Holy Spirit from heaven. May the presence of Thy Holy Spirit be with us this day to guide and direct this class and our discussion. We pray thee, O God, that the truth of thy word and the faith of thy church may take deep root in our hearts and bear forth much fruit in our lives. We pray thee to bless those who are traveling to be here. We pray thee, O God, that we would remain ever faithful to the truth of thy holy gospel. And all of this we pray. In that name which is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Um, Firstly, I I wanna say that I received and I shared with Praveen a a real blessing in in the form of an email the other day from a a lieutenant uh, who serves in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. I believe it was Fairfax, uh, named uh, Lieutenant Jeff Hunt. And he found these tapes on the website and has been listening to them in his uh, car. Uh, he said several times over, and, um, um, and so anyway, I just uh, want to say I was very moved by that, and, and I just wanted to say hello to the good lieutenant, because uh, he's probably going to be listening to this one. So blessings to you, Lieutenant Jeff Hunt, and thank you for blessing me by sharing um, your email with me. Today we are discussing the apostolic fathers. And um, of course, outside of the Holy Scripture, the reason the apostolic period is so important is that this is really the foundation upon which which the church is built. And we are going to see uh, today a lot of the things that you have the Holy Scriptures, but then what emerged... In the life of the very early church, the apostolic church, as being the form of the faith, the form of ministry, the uh, worship and sacramental life, um, uh, etc., out from those Holy Scriptures. I mean, if people wanted to, they could say, well, you know, I follow this particular passage of how it was done. Well, I follow this particular passage of how it was done in Holy Scripture. And really, um, if you read in particular Michael Ramsey's book, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, uh, The Gospel in the Catholic Church, he makes the point, uh, for example, in talking about the threefold ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon, which at the beginning, and we'll talk about this more in, in, in a minute, uh, originally was apostle. The second um, ministry was bishop slash priest. And then three was, third was deacon. But that this uh, threefold office of ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon uh, is, is not only grounded in Holy Scripture, but there are other forms of ministry that are as well. But this is the threefold order of ordained ministry, that was received by the whole church out of Holy Scripture. Okay, this is the model that was birthed out of Holy Scripture. And so it not only uh, is scripturally founded, but it becomes what is received by the church as the ordained ministry. Okay, um, and so for Anglicans, this is important to us because we not only say, well, we, you know, we follow this. Because if we did, then we would say, well, okay, well, we think when we set up uh, our our church, you know, we're going to have apostles and prophets uh, and evangelists and helpers and teachers. And, you know, we could follow that list too. And it's not that those um, ministries are false in any ways, but in any way, but that they solidified in many ways. Uh, and found themselves expressed and lived out within the life of the very early church, the Apostolic Church, in the threefold ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon. There are also some practices alluded to within the writings of the Holy Scripture that did not become the practice of the church east and west, or were even rejected. Uh, I'll give an example. Paul says, uh, and maybe you can help me out where, I think it's with the Corinthians, he refers to their practice of baptizing on behalf of the dead. That's in Corinthians. Um, It's either in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. I have a good feeling it's not in 3 Corinthians. Uh, uh, So baptizing on behalf of the dead. Strangely enough, he doesn't come right out and condemn the practice. He just makes mention of it really to show us how important they take the practice of baptism. Uh, And, of course, it gives us insight into the understanding of the relationship between baptism and salvation. Um, But that was a practice that was not only not received within the whole church, but actually, later on, condemned by the whole church. Okay, So, for us, it's not only what is scriptural, because you can almost argue for anything out of that, But it's what is clearly scriptural, scriptural, scripture holding that place of primacy, but then also what emerged out of the scripture as being received within the life of the early church. Is everyone with me on that? Everyone? Any questions? Okay. All right. Um, So we're looking today... At the Apostolic Age. Well, I'll give another example to help you get your mind wrapped around it, uh, in case you, you haven't. And, and that is that, really, which books are the New Testament were not given by Jesus. Jesus didn't say before his ascension, the following 27 books will be received, once they finally get written, um, <laughs> will be received as the canon of Scripture for the church, okay? These are things that developed within the life of the church, within the life of the church, okay? Um, And so there is an age of development within the church, uh, and it's really recognized as being the first five centuries. And it was in those first five centuries that the following was solidified, Number one, the canon of Scripture was solidified in this age of development. The canon of Scripture. It is not true that Jesus gave a list of the 27 books, nor his apostles. In fact, the only word by an apostle about what is scriptural is is uh, when Peter alludes to some of Paul's writings and refers to them as scripture, but also says that they're very hard to understand. Okay. Um, so, in this age of development, the first five centuries, the canon of scripture, the official list of the New Testament, and of course the Old Testament as well. Number two, the. Uh, The faith of the church developed in this age. The faith of the church developed in this age. Particularly, (coughs) our understanding of the Trinity and the person of Christ. So the Trinitarian theology of the church and Christology developed in this age. And uh, particularly through the councils, the, the first four or the first seven ecumenical councils, and we'll get to that next time more in in greater detail. Um, But the Nicene Creed emerged in this time period. So first, the canon of Scripture, but then also the faith of the Church was solidified in this uh, time period and articulated in particular in the Creed. Our Trinitarian theology, our Christology, all come from this time period. Um, Number three, the sacramental and liturgical life of the church church emerged in this time period and solidified in this time period. And four, the apostolic ministry of the church, the threefold office of bishop, priest, and deacon developed in this particular time of the church and was solidified in this time of the church. So it is not true that when Jesus was ascending into heaven or on the day of Pentecost that the church community had any uh, uh, clear definitions of what would be the, uh, the order of ministry, what would be the canon of scripture, uh, what would be their creeds and how they'd articulate it, or, or, or worship in the sacramental life. These things, although grounded in the scripture and pretty much established by the end of the apostolic age, 120, still were in the process of the glue drying, so to speak, and being solidified within the first five centuries. Once those first five centuries are established, They say, look, these things that have emerged within the life of the church, the canon of scripture, Old and New Testament, the faith of the church, our Trinitarian faith, our faith in Christ and his incarnation, the creeds, the councils, the sacramental and worship life of the church, the liturgical life of the church, and the threefold order of ministry. Once those things, they all were grounded in the scripture all really are present to a greater or lesser degree without a a doubt in the apostolic age. But really the glue dries by the end of the the first five centuries, Okay, by the end of the 400s. So it's grounded in Scripture, grounded in the apostolic age, but really solidifies over this time. But once it is solidified, it becomes, these things become the canon or the ruler, the measuring stick by which all of the church until the second coming of Christ should um, uh, measure itself by, okay? To say, look, what we are doing in the 21st century, is it the same as the church of the first five centuries, what was clearly scriptural, what was developed in the age of the apostles, the apostolic age, and what solidified in those first few centuries. Is everyone with me? Deacon Susie. Did one of the councils end the apostolic age, or what ended? The death of the apostles ended the apostolic age, and we'll, and we'll get to that, because it's give or take by about a generation, and so we'll talk about that a little bit more but the latest date would be about 120. 120. Okay. Um, And so for us as Anglicans, this is very, very important because this is... It's okay, Paulina. Good to see you. This is the age in which um, the, the ministry of the church, the faith of the church, the canon of scripture, the worship of the church, the sacramental life of the church... Uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, developed and remember, it. I think we talked about this last time. Let's take the canon of Scripture. It's neither one extreme, like the evangelical extreme, that Jesus was ascending into heaven and said, "Oh, whoop! Well, before I go, here you are. Here's the canon of Scripture, King James version, leather bound, my words in red, concordance in the back with maps." Okay, uh, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, In fact, uh, it wasn't until the 300s, the mid-300s with Athanasius, that we get a list of the canon of the New Testament exactly as we have it today. But nor is the other side true, where you hear people say, Oh, well, you know... The scripture wasn't around until like Athanasius and then, you know, they were just books and they, you know, the the Catholic bishops got together and decided that these books were going to hold a special position in the church. That's not true either. The fact is, is that these scriptures were all written between around 50 A.D. to 96 A.D. 50 A.D. to 96 A.D. So they were, they were also articulating in light of the incarnation of Christ a faith that was congruent with the scriptures of the Old Testament and they developed within the and were written and received within the apostolic church. Okay? Um, however, there was parts of the church that had some extra, like 1 Clement. There were some parts of the church that had some concerns about misinterpretations of books uh, like um, uh, Revelation. And so there was a period where the canon, it was a while where it took to solidify. Okay, um, But however, it's scripture and it's grounded in scripture and in the apostolic age it is formed and written. But the glue actually is, is finalized or dries and everything is solidified by the 4th century. Another thing you hear a lot is, oh, well, the doctrine of the Trinity, they didn't come up with that until 381 at the Council of Constantinople. Well, that's just not true. Okay, Um, The fact is is that um, the Trinity is revealed in part in the Old Testament and it's revealed more fully in the New Testament and it is the faith of the church from the apostolic age. But now it's worked out, clarified, it solidifies as people were questioning, uh, questioning it and it was, they were being led away by heresies. So the church was f- um, forced, almost, forced to establish boundaries of the faith within the mystery of the faith. Okay, And that's where the creeds come from. So these early centuries are very important, and they really are the measuring stick for the rest of the church's history. And that's why for Anglicanism, although we recognize that there are seven ecumenical councils received by the whole church, East and West, we tend to put an emphasis on the first four, because the first four are within that first 500-year period where really everything is is worked out, solidified, the glue dries, okay? And so we see the Sixth and Seventh Council really as a working out of that which was already established in the first five centuries. Everyone with me? Questions? Concerns? Praveen, then Bob?
1: Now, anything that's considered Catholic mm-hmm. is something that's accepted by both the
0: East and the West. Yeah, by definition. It would, it would have to be accepted by the whole church as grounded in Scripture and the apostolic age and this age, this golden period. Yeah.
1: But the, the ecumenical councils didn't get together and say, these are the books that henceforth shall be known as the New Testament. That mm-hmm. happened before the ecumenical Council.
0: Uh, well around around the same time as the first one okay yeah
1: but it wasn't an outcome of the ecumenical council it wasn't in one of the uh, canons that came out of the ecumenical council
0: one of the later ones looking back could do, do clarify that but it was really within the life of the church that these things were accepted so
1: for for the books that are now accepted as the new testament Yes. At some point, East and West yep. agreed that these are the New Testament. Yes. So they went through the same process of saying, "Yeah, we all agree," and it was universally accepted. That it it universally, was-
0: universally accepted, and it pretty much was that way from the end of the Apostolic Age on, with one or two additions and one or two deletions. the The essence of the canon was there, but it didn't solidify until the mid fourth century. That's correct. Bob, Um,
2: I guess really two questions. Last comment. Let me think of the other question. Um,
0: Thanks a lot, Praveen. The
2: (laughs) the the Episcopal argument, the, the argument of tech, essentially would run: Why privilege just the first five centuries? Can't we understand the? Holy Spirit to be at work through the entire life of the Church, the entire history of the Church, mm-hmm. um, and therefore our understanding of the nature of God, the nature of Trinity, how to regard Scripture, uh, all of that is subject to evolution and what shouldn't necessarily privilege the first five centuries. How, how would you respond to that?
0: fairly easily by, by saying that in, there's a difference between development of doctrine and development of faith. If something is a fuller understanding of that which is already revealed, or is a way of articulating it anew in this day and age that's not contrary to what has already been received and grounded in Scripture, then you know, it can be okay. Um, as long as it's not in contradiction to the Word of God or in contradiction to that which has been received by the whole church East and West already as being clearly biblical in its foundation. Um, That's different from a development of faith, which is um, a denial of the uh, authority of Holy Scripture or a change to the faith of Holy Scripture and that which is Catholic, and they're claiming the latter when something is going against against that which is biblical um, and received by the whole church as east and west then then we 've gone uh, that 's a development of faith, not a development of doctrine it's not a fuller understanding or a new articulation of that which has already been received. Um, and so that's where it would become problematic um, at, at that point. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I would argue that, um, that when things are contrary to the word of God and to the patristic faith, um, as grounded in, in God's word, then that's something that's an innovation that's new. The next thing I I would say is that once the canon of Scripture is solidified, it becomes the canon for all subsequent generations of what is truly apostolic. Therefore, to know in our own age when we struggle with things, uh, if something is apostolic or not, we look to the Word of God. We look to the Holy Scriptures. Where what they're saying is that this is a truth outside of the holy scripture that's been revealed through reason or by vote, uh, by opinion, through culture, and we would say that the culture, etc., has to be informed by the word of God and the faith of the undivided church, as grounded in scripture, and not the other way around. And not the other way around. Was there a part two? Uh,
2: I'm going to let part two
0: go. Okay, Karen, and then Bob. It it really wasn't. We have to remember that the early church did not set out to define things in any exhaustive manner. They didn't, uh, unlike the medieval Western church that was concerned with how many angels could dance on the head of a pin and we really got to get the the exact answer, at least within two or three. uh, They weren't interested in that. They were very comfortable with mystery. They would only define parameters of mystery when really forced to. That is, when something was called into question to the point that people were being led away from the truth. Then they would say, okay, you know, let's define this more uh, fully. Let's establish parameters. So I would say that for the most part, given give or take that in some areas a few books were called into question because they were afraid of misinterpretation like Revelation or in other places where, you know, books like First Clement, which were highly revealed throughout the church anyway, were used canonically when um, uh, people came to church, they may be read within the worship, etc. That essentially there was very little question about what is the, uh, the canon of scripture. And so I think you're right on uh, when, when you say that. Bob?
2: Talk about the organi- organization of the Apostolic Church after one hundred and twenty. My reading of the history says that it was the organized church was based on the diocese. Mm-hmm. Is that true also in the Apostolic Age?
0: In in the sense that you, uh, it, it, it's almost like the baby in a womb. Uh, yes, it's true that almost right from the beginning, uh, at least in the Mediterranean world, the diocesan model was right from the beginning the model which was followed. And we'll talk about that a little bit more fully uh, a little bit later. Um, and it's because Roman society and the Roman Empire was built upon the city-states of, of uh, the Greek Empire, and uh, so they followed that, that particular model. And a governor oversaw a diocese, a Roman governor, which would be the main city and then the suburbs in <laughs> the country around that area. Um, and so they, they, when they evangelized, they went from city to city establishing churches. And so the, the bishops followed that model. But it really is a development in that the very early dioceses were really a, a parish. And the bishop was the priest. You know, and so you're talking a very small, unlike today, where you might have a diocese that has you know hundreds and hundreds of churches and thousands and thousands of people. It wasn't like that that developed later and in the Celtic lands, um, as we'll see when we get to that history, didn't develop until Theodore of Tarsus came uh in the mid to later six hundreds. Um, it's part of what makes uh, early Celtic Christianity distinct from the uh, rest of Western and Eastern Christianity was uh, that it didn't follow the diocesan model, but it was because there were no great cities and there was no great road system. And, uh, you know, so they had more of a monastic missionary bishop model, you know, in the ancient Celtic lands. But yes, almost from the beginning... I mean, Paul's going city to city and establishing churches. And the, he would ordain people there, and the and the the head priest, uh, presbyter, elder, the head one, was the bishop. And then he'd be surrounded and assisted by the others uh, and the deacons in that area. But yeah, right, right from almost the get-go, from the apostolic age, you see the foundations of that model. Absolutely. Okay. All right. The apostolic age um begins with thirty-three AD, roughly. Now our dating is off a little bit. Um we think we are probably in the year right now, what's it 2012? It's probably more like 2016, 17, or 18 right now. Um so um but so we're probably off by a little bit. But um oh okay uh, poor guy okay um uh, for those who are listening uh bob is uh not hip and uh he's having well, hip that's hip only one of the bobs. that's only one of the bobs the other uh, the other bob the other two bobs are hip there are a few other things but anyway um so so we're off a little bit, right? But I'm going to use 33 AD. I'm going to simplify it because that's just the way our dating system goes, okay? Um, so Jesus, in this simplified view, um, is born, and uh, the, 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 the new way of counting begins, right? So he lives approximately, I mean, probably like I said, 4 to 6 BC, but we're going to say from 1 uh, or from 0... Although they started at once, that's another problem too. But anyway, from 1 to 33 AD is the approximate life of Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate. 33 years. I think everyone in this room, uh, maybe not Chris, but most of us are older than God. Because uh, uh, God, at least God incarnate, lived 33 years. So we're all older than God. Are you pushing God's age? No. No? You're in your twenties. I'll be thirty in August. Oh, okay. Well, you're getting there, and you're starting your ministry, your public ministry. Well, this is kind of you. Yeah, I just hope in three years you're not crucified. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or if you are, that you get up a few days later. But anyway, uh, back to the reality. so the approximate life of Jesus, 33 AD, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension into heaven of Jesus Christ, and then the significant event now in, uh, of the beginning of the church. Now, in one way, the church is the, the new manifestation of the church that began with the covenant between God and Abraham. But in, a, in, a, in another way, the church begins on Pentecost, Okay, when uh, uh, our Lord sends from his Father um, the Holy Spirit, which is the temporal mission of the Spirit, for those who also attend on Sunday mornings, Jesus sends from the Father the the Holy Spirit upon the church. Um, Now, think of, the the church is also called the body of Christ. Um, Jesus is also called the new Adam, the new man. And if you think of us as representing Christ in the world, we are um, the new Adam in Christ, okay? Um, The first Adam was created by God, and he was a what until the Spirit was breathed into him? A lifeless being, it says, okay? He was a lifeless being until God breathed the spirit into him, okay? Uh, The word uh, for breath is the same as spirit in both Hebrew and in Greek, okay? And then he becomes a living being, a living being. Remember, Jesus referring to himself, and of course by extension, according to the early church fathers, refers to the Eucharist as the living bread, That means spirit-breathed bread, not ordinary bread, okay? So, Adam is created, but he's a lifeless being until the Spirit of God is breathed into him. Well, the church, as the new Adam in Christ, we are the body of Christ. In a sense, we are a lifeless being until the Spirit is breathed into us. Okay. And so Jesus says, "Look, don't do anything until you receive my promise, the Spirit." Don't go st- well, but but Lord, we're going to go out and cast out. No. <laughs> well, we're going to go to the submit. No. You're going to stay here until you receive the Spirit because without the Spirit, we as the church are dead. We are a lifeless being. On Pentecost, They hear a mighty rushing wind. The Spirit of God is breathed into the new Adam in Christ, the church, and the church is born. The church becomes a living being in Christ by the Spirit, and now we are empowered to go out and to make Jesus Christ known to a world that is dead. Everyone with me? in order to bring the life-giving Spirit to them, to the world. All right. So, the Pentecost is really the, uh, the, the baptism of the Spirit really means that the, that the church, as the body of Christ, would be immersed in the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, individuals, um, prophets, prophets, Kings, priests, archdeacons, they had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm kidding about that latter part. They had the anointing of the, the, yeah, the archdeacon. They had the anointing of the Spirit. In the New Testament, if you're in Christ, you're part of the church that has been immersed, that is baptized in the Spirit of the living God. Okay? Now, this whole idea, should we all receive... The baptism of the Spirit personally, yes, but not individually, and that gets into a whole nother lecture, and there's a lot of confusion about that out there. Okay, but it's not an individual thing. It's the baptism of the Spirit is for the body of Christ. Okay, for all people to receive personally, but that's different than individually. But anyway. So 33 AD, Pentecost, the birthday of the church where the church becomes a living being in Christ by the power and breath of God the Spirit. All right, death, uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Pentecost. I'm sorry, I'm just reading my notes out loud here. Then the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Samaria and then to the whole known world following the death of St. Stephen the deacon. If you look it up, it's it's incredible how God works something for good. Stephen is stoned to death, and it said that the church just scattered in fear. But it says that wherever they went, they proclaimed the word of God. So through their fear, and their running away, right? Run away, run away, right? They go running out. I want to see how many of you were Monty Python. Heads, but uh, uh, Anyway, run away, run away. Um, they went out. okay they went out and they brought the Word of God with them. and so the Word of God begins to spread. Um, and then you see Philip, the deacon by the way, not the apostle, goes down to Samaria and and proclaims the good, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. people receive. Uh, the good news, and, and people are baptized, and then the apostles come down to lay hands upon them that they might receive that apostolic gift of the Spirit. Okay? So it spreads from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the world. Okay? And this is exactly what Jesus said, that when the Spirit came, that the gospel would spread. But notice it spreads through the violence, the, the stoning of, Pe- uh, uh, of Stephen. The stoning of Stephen. But God uses that to bring the word of God out. And I know this is hard. It's hard for me too. It's hard for me too. I don't always remember this. But I try to. That whatever I'm going through in life, I try to say to myself, instead of, why is this happening to me? God, how can this be used to spread your gospel? You know, like the apostles. All right, we're going to beat you and then put you in prison. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Thank you. It's a whole opportunity to reach some people with the gospel that we couldn't reach before. Not, you know, why me? Why do I have to go to jail? You know, that would be me, by the way. I feel like I'm going to assign uh, Bob to do the prison ministry.
2: Dan wants to be a
0: deacon. No, oh, is that right? That's news to me. Oh, because he works in the prison. Oh, okay. There you go. That's it. We could always try stoning the archdeacon Yeah. Ah. I love you, Praveen. I'm gonna miss I'm gonna miss you, but I love you. Yeah. Karen. 50 days yeah Yeah. penta (laughs) 50 50 days days, days. yeah Yeah. 50 days yeah 50 days after the uh, death and resurrection of of our Lord about 10 days after the ascension give or take okay um so the gospel spreads um to the whole world the, the known world um For them back then, when Jesus says he's going to go to the ends of the earth. What would be the ends of the earth? Everyone. India, China. Yeah, and in the Western Europe, it would probably be uh, Great Britain. Yeah, the Celtic lands. Okay, and this is particular to us because of our heritage as Anglicans. So according to ancient tradition, Joseph of Arimathea is first to bring the gospel to ancient Britain. Um let's see. To ancient Britain and the surrounding Celtic lands. And this is Joseph of Arimathea, who's mentioned in all four gospel narratives, by the way. He was a Pharisee. Uh, he was with Nicodemus, those who stood up for Jesus. Okay. Um, according to some of the early church fathers, he was a traitor in tin. Uh, and his trade route brought him to ancient Britain, where he shared the the good news. Other sources say that Simon the Zealot also brought uh, the apostolic faith from Jerusalem to the ancient Celtic lands, and what we call Great Britain. Okay, so now, all of this is happening in the apostolic age. Uh, Pentecost is the beginning and then the spreading of the church with its message, the gospel, so between 33 and approximately 53, the gospel's going everywhere. The apostolic ministry is going everywhere. Right? The faith of the church is going everywhere. Where's the New Testament going? Nowhere. hasn't been written. Not a single letter. Okay. Not till about 53 A.D. Okay. So, the apostolic ministry, which is probably the first thing of the four that I mentioned earlier that are called into question or dismissed out of hand, is present from the, from the times of the New Testament and the apostolic age, and it's going everywhere. Even when Philip the deacon goes down to Samaria, he proclaims the gospel, the people who receive it, he baptizes them but he doesn't lay hands upon them for the apostolic gift of the Spirit, what we would later call confirmation, because he's not an apostle. So James and John come down to Samaria, and they lay hands on the people there that they can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later on, Paul is going through, I think it was Ephesus, and he finds some believers, and he assumes that they're baptized, right? He finds out later that they weren't, but he assumes they are. He assumes that if they're believers that they've been baptized, the one thing he doesn't assume is that they've received the apostolic gift of the Spirit. Right? And so he says, did you receive this? And they, you know, the Holy Spirit? And then they say, well, we don't even know about the Holy Spirit. And then he's like... What is up with you? And it turns out that they were Presbyterian. No, kidding. Uh, Just kidding. Um, And uh, so, uh, you know, he baptizes them correctly and then he lays hands upon them that they might receive that apostolic gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, And so the faith of the church, the gospel of the church, the ministry of the church, um, uh, at this point the threefold ministry is apostle, and then bishop-priests and deacons. And soon after, that, with the death of the apostles, you, you see this distinction between bishops and priests, with bishops moving more into the position of the apostolic office, and you have bishops, priests, and deacons. But that is from the beginning. That is from the beginning. And you see uh, allusions to this in the New Testament where Paul refers to Timothy and Titus and having ordained them, having laid hands upon them. We see this with the ordination of the seven, first seven deacons. The apostles lay hands upon them. Okay, So there is the, the foundation of ordination in the New Testament and certainly in the Apostolic Age. By, by the end of the Apostolic Age, it's basically fully developed. Well, now, some scholars will sit around and say, oh, well, yes, yes, yes you see, but there's, there's no clear definition, though, of the apostolic succession as people like you understand it today, Michael, that, you know, um, uh, deacons and priests and bishops must be ordained by bishops who are ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles, and that there's this pouring out of the Holy Spirit in every age. Uh, through this ordination. You you see none of that clearly articulated in the New Testament. And you don't see this clearly. Or you see allusions to it in some of the fathers and in Irenaeus and so forth, though he doesn't, you know, he's not distinguishing as much between bishops and priests, but you really don't see it until a little bit later. And they say, so you know, you're really taking something that's dear to you, and and that's cute, and, and applying it to them back then and saying, well, look, Paul laid hands on Timothy, so that's the apostolic succession. Well, I got news for these bright scholars. The idea of laying on of hands actually goes back to rabbis. So this would have been very important to them. Um, And it is founded in Holy Scripture. Those who are ordained, like Timothy and Titus, have hands laid on them, and, and there's references to that. But the reason that there's no clear definition, like by the earliest fathers Clement and Ignatius and others, apostolic succession means a bishop, priest, or deacon being ordained by a bishop who was ordained themselves by bishops who can trace their line of succession back to the apostles who received the gift and power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, who is God. Well, I got news. The, pro- the the reason that this isn't written like that anywhere in the New Testament is because it wasn't an issue. They only address what's issues. Paul, when he's writing to places, what's he dealing with when he writes to Corinth and to Ephesus and to Thessalonica and to Philippi? He's dealing with problems which have arisen. Things that need to be clarified. This was a non-issue. But I also have news too that the Trinity... Is very much the faith of Holy Scripture. The incarnation is very much the faith of Holy Scripture. Right? The canon of Scripture is essential to our faith. What books are the the Bible? None of those are clearly defined in the New Testament either. Nowhere does the New Testament say the following books are the New Testament. Nowhere does the word Trinity even appear. Nowhere does the word incarnation appear, does it? Good. I thought it was right, but I wasn't 100% sure, so I wanted to look to someone who was recently in seminary. right? <laughs> incarnation doesn't appear, and it's essential to our faith. The word Trinity doesn't appear, and it's essential to our faith. The canon of Scripture isn't, isn't listed in the New Testament either, but it's essential to our faith. So the apostolic succession... It's, I would argue, is as clear, if not more clear, than things like the Trinity in the New Testament. and But it does develop, just like so did the canon of Scripture and the creeds and the sacramental understanding of the church and the worship life in this early period. But this is clearly has its foundation in the Apostolic Age, which, if you read your book, you know, because Ignatius, as well as Clement, is all over the threefold order of ministry, a bishop, priest, and deacon. And that, I mean, it, it's there in the Eucharist. I mean, everything is clearly there. they there when they argue stuff, they're arguing from Holy Scripture. A lot of Old Testament, but some New Testament, too. It's all there. Okay? So they're making their argument from Scripture. The threefold order of ministry, clearly established by the Apostolic Age. Bishop, priest, and deacon. Okay? Um, the faith of the church that would later become articulated in the creeds and the councils is, is, is emerging. The divinity of Jesus is being clarified and so forth, in the Trinity is there. Okay? Um, uh, you know, the one thing that is less clear is exactly which books are the New Testament at this point. But they're starting already at this age without too much question to emerge as a canon. Okay? Um, so these people say, "Well, it's nowhere clearly apostolic succession." You know, you're, you're so mean to the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Lutherans, making them saying that they really should come into the apostolic succession. That's nowhere clearly defined in Scripture. Neither is the canon of Scripture. Neither is the incarnation. Neither is the Trinity. You, you know, these things aren't clearly. You know, Trinity belief in one God who is one in essence, being, or substance who is three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The person's neither being confused to the point where you lose the distinction of the persons or divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the Godhead. Where's that? Third Corinthians. I thought it was 3 Corinthians. I thought so. Jude chapter 2. Mark chapter 17. Yes. Yes, yes, pseudo, pseudo, Mark. Anyway, um, do you you see my point? And yet within this apostolic age, all of these things under the guidance of the Spirit are solidifying and becoming normative within the life of the church. And so I remember uh, a bishop very close to me saying to me once, "I I," now you know who it is because I've already started by accident to imitate him. He says, "I, I believe in apostolic succession as much as you. But there's no absolute direct proof that it goes all the way back to the apostles with unbroken line. There's no direct proof that those 27 books mean anything more than any book that's ever been written. It's it's part of the faith that we've received from the apostolic age. Okay? Um, And uh, um, so I think that's important for us to remember. This age, the apostolic age is so important to us. Um, so the Apostolic Age goes from 33 AD to about 110 120 A.D. Now it's called the Apostolic Age because it's the age of the Apostles. The last apostle of the 12 to die. The 12 meaning Matthias or and or Paul. So 12, 13. <laughs> Okay, Um, of the 12 to die uh, is John. John dies somewhere between 100 and probably 110. Most scholars extend the apostolic age to about 120 with the writing of the Didache because although not written by the 12 apostles, it was received by the early churches as articulating the faith of the apostles in that region. Okay? Um, and so the apostolic age goes to about one, 110, 120, OK? But it's the age of not only when the apostles lived, ministered and died, but it's also where we get apostolic ministry in that age. the beginning of the canon, which is apostolic, the sacramental and liturgical and worship life. Um, the faith of the church. That's why, I mean, we really are an apostolic church. What we do today, for example, um, the canon of the mass, this is important, so I'm going to quote this, the canon of the mass, according to, developed in this age. Here's Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was a martyr in Rome He died uh, in 160, 165 A.D. He's writing in about 150, and he's writing about um, Christian worship on the Lord's Day as he's known it in his lifetime. So he's writing in 150 A.D. So his lifetime goes back to the end of the Apostolic Age. And so he's not saying this is how we should do it from now on. He's describing Christian worship on the Lord's Day in his day, which goes back to the apostolic age, okay? Are you ready? <clears throat> For all that we receive, we bless the maker of all things through his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And on the day which is called the son's day, S-U-N-S, the son's day, what day is that? Sunday. You guys are so smart. <laughs> Man... Yep, okay, Sunday is Sunday, the Lord's day. There is an assembly, what's the word assembly in Greek? Ecclesia. Ecclesia, and it means? Church. Okay, I thought you were going to say assembly. <laughs> okay. Wow, way to go, Bob, church, you're right, so it's the church. So on Sunday, there is an assembly of all who live in the city, because they're built on city-states, towns or the country. And the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. So first, on the Lord's Day, you have a gathering of the church. And why are they gathering? It says, to offer thanks to the maker of all things through his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And what's the Greek word for thanksgiving? Eucharist. And they gather and they have what? Readings from the Old and New Testament. The prophets and the apostles. When the reader has finished, the presider gives a discourse. I like that word, discourse. It implies a lengthy, lengthy sermon. Admonishing us and exhorting us to imitate these excellent examples. So what is the discourse, the sermon, which is given by the presider, who is in this case the bishop or the priest, what is it to be grounded in clearly here according to Justin? The scripture that has just been read, by the way, the ones that were read. So you have a gathering of the ecclesia, the church, the body of Christ, on the Lord's day to give thanks to God, which is the word Eucharist, There's readings from the Old and New Testament, and of course, when they sang, according to the scriptures, they would sing what? Psalms, which we do, right? And then you'd have a sermon given by the bishop or the priest that would open up to the gathering, the people, the assembly, the church, the scriptures, the word of God. Then we all rise together and offer prayers. What's that? Pray the people. Prayers of the people. Right. They'd pray. It was now time for petition. Okay. Bread is brought and wine and water. Wine and water. And the pers- uh, notice it doesn't say plastic wafers. Bread is brought. <laughs> okay. And wine and water. And the presider offers up prayers of thanksgiving, the Eucharist. And the people assent with amen. Then follows the distribution of the Eucharistic gifts and the partaking of them by all. So you had the prayers of the people, then you had the Eucharistic prayer, the people gave the amen, now everyone has received. And they are sent, that is the Eucharistic gifts, are sent to the sick by the hands of the deacons. So you see, there you have the the deacons, and they're doing what? Going out to the sick, exactly what we do. We hold our common assembly on the sun's day, because it is the first day on which God put to flight darkness and chaos and made the world. And on this day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead, he appeared to his apostles and disciples, notice the distinction, and taught them these things which we have handed on to you. Apostolic succession is also the handing on of the apostolic faith, not just the apostolic ministry. Okay, um, and we'll, we'll talk more. But anyway, what we're going to do tomorrow at 9 a.m., is what the Christian church has done since the apostolic age and what I pray we will do until the second coming of Christ. And what we do is, in, is, is part of what the church in every age has done. By the way, he goes on to even say a collection is taken up uh, as well. So even passing the basket is apostolic. But anyway... <laughs> um,
2: Colin Buchanan, going back to him again, uh, he's, his observation is, okay, this is one description of, serv- of one service out of what, I forget how he worked this calculation, maybe a quarter of a million Eucharistic or church services that have happened, um, and his argument is, well, how do we privilege this one? So mm-hmm. the question is, are, is there other... Data.
0: Uh, well, two things I would say to Cannon, uh, B- no, uh, what's his name, Buchanan, um, uh, two things I would say to him. I would say number one um, is that, uh, you know, there there are, there are other descriptions, uh, some uh, a bit later than Justin, but they're in continuity with what Justin has written, you, you, you know, so that... that yeah, so that would be my, my my first response, and and the ancient liturgy of like Saint James, which is so so old, you, you know. Uh, I don't know the exact date, but I mean it, it. You know, it's so old that it's attributed to James. You know, um, but I would also say that while there was a great variety of how the Eucharist was done in different parts of the world the fact that they're celebrating the Eucharist on the Lord's Day is clearly the practice in the apostolic age. And that this is, I would argue, this is the form that emerges within the whole church, East and West. Even though you had some variation of language and order of things within the service and so forth and so on, um, that this is essentially what emerges as the Catholic outline of Eucharistic worship. So those would, for Colin M- Buchanan, those would be my two, two responses, is that um, why do we kind of lift this up? Well, for one, is that he's describing it as he's known it in his life. For two, that there are other writings, though somewhat later, but they're in continuity with what he has written and described. And then three, this is what emerges in the whole church, east and west, as the essential outline. Now, this doesn't settle whether the creed should come before or after the sermon. Do you see what I mean? Because uh, the creed actually won't come into the Mass for several centuries, actually. Uh, and it's long before the creed is written. But the essential outline is, is there. And I would say that there's enough evidence in the early church that what he's describing is not peculiar as far as the essence of what he's describing. Um. Uh, you can't make an argument here that there's only one Eucharistic prayer and you know and that kind of thing, but the essence is is there, Bob.
2: I understand that before Constantine, it was called Sunday was called the Lord's Day, and that it was Constantine that changed it to Sunday. Do you know of that?
0: I don't. I don't. Anyone? Sorry, I I don't. Um, And I'm trying to think of where it is in the scripture where it refers to the breaking of the bread on the Lord's Day. Not the road to Emmaus. I mean, that's obvious. That's the day of the resurrection, and Jesus himself breaks the bread, and they recognize him. But there's a reference in Paul uh, to it. But anyway, I would say that that's, that's uh, that's the norm. That's the norm. I don't think you can make an argument out of this that the Eucharistic canon as written by, uh, edited by Cramner should be the one used throughout the Church East and West, but you can make the argument that, you know, certainly um, the Eucharist in its essential form has been Christian worship on the Lord's Day since the New Testament. Okay. Okay. Okay, so the apostolic um, age is 33 A.D. to 110-120 A.D. Apostolic teaching and preaching, okay? That is, our teaching and preaching today must be in continuity with that of the apostles. How do we know if it is? Well, we must become very familiar with the scriptures because they are the canon of what is apostolic for all subsequent generations. And then, of course, we need to be familiar with the writings of the earliest church fathers. Um, Part of, of my problem is, you know, the bishop challenged me a little bit. He said, you know, I think it's great what you're doing at Holy Trinity um, in that, you know, people are sitting around debating the, you know, the filioque and they're, they're asking questions about, you know, this and that. And he said, I really think that's wonderful and that's to be commended. But he said, um, you know, I think you're unrealistic to think that, you know, that can be done in, in every church. And with all due respect, I think that that view is what limits us as a church. I think that we need to start getting the average Joe and Jane in the pew understanding all of these things. And it's not that hard. You know, our priests need to either self-educate or get tutors or or go to seminaries where they teach these things, but they need to understand um, the Scripture and the writings of the fathers and how they work. And then they need to teach it to their other clergy. And then they need to teach it to the lay leaders. And then they need to teach it to everyone in in the church. Okay? Okay. Uh, otherwise, you know, people w- can be misled, can be misled. I have been welcoming into my house a few times now um, some Jehovah's Witnesses who they're trying to convert me, I'm trying to convert them. They knocked the other door a day, and I uh, just Friday, and I couldn't let them in because I was counseling someone. Um, but I call them my two deacons because one's named Stephen and the other is uh, Lawrence, and they're the two great names of the deacons. And they, they said, oh, okay, well, we won't bother you since you have someone, but uh, we'll come back. And, and I said, well, great, great, look forward to talking to you. And they said, well, here, did you get our pamphlet on Christmas? I said, yep, and, and, and I read it. And, and they said, oh, okay, well, here's another one. Uh, it's called The Trinity. Is Jesus Christ the Almighty God? And I said, well, I know the answer. <laughs> I said, yes he, yes, he is. And they said, well, that's your answer. And I said, no, actually, that's what God has revealed through His Scripture and the faith of the church, and but what's interesting is when I started looking it over, they quote Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Scripture and say, if you really understood, like John chapter one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they say that Greek really should say, and He was a God. And now, the average Joe and Jane reading that would go, oh, oh, my goodness, and. Father Michael talked a little bit about the fathers. Well, did, does he know that Justin Martyr doesn't believe in the Trinity? Do, do you see what I mean? And people are going to be too, too easily led away. We need to be talking about these things, you know, in, in the average churches out there. It's called discipleship. And we need to be having these, these classes. Okay. Um, so apostolic teaching and preaching. What we teach and preach today is to be grounded in the Scripture, which is, by canon, apostolic. Okay. In the Apostolic Age, the Old Testament is interpreted in light of Christ. In light of Christ. Uh, A good example that I give is when someone says to me, Oh, well, okay, we'll take the New Testament out of it. Well, that's a big take it out of it. But anyway, uh, the only references you have uh, about homosexual practices are from the Old Testament. Well, if you're going to mention those, then how come you don't follow all the dietary laws? Ha ha ha, we got you, we got you. (laughs) Because the New Testament is clear that in obedience to Christ, we are not free from the law which is called moral, but we are free from the particular law of the Jews. There's the answer. But does the average Joe and Jane, even in the Orthodox Anglican movement in North America, are they able to answer that question if, if someone puts it to them? No. And then they say, see, you're just prejudiced. Oh, maybe I am. Well, that's what they did to slaves, you know. Into the, You know, oh, wow, I don't want to be like that. And then the next thing you know is, oh, Father Michael, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to St. Swithin's Episcopal Church now. And, uh, you know so um Saint Sophia's is what I should call you um uh and so we understand the all of Scripture is canonical and authoritative, but we understand the Old Testament in light of the incarnation in light of the incarnation <clears throat> Next, Hebrew Scriptures versus Old Testament. This is a pet peeve for me, folks. I've gone to churches before to visit, and someone gets up and they say, a reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 6. They're not Hebrew Scriptures. They're, they're Old Testament, First Testament, whatever you want to call it. So what's, what's the difference? Hebrew Scriptures is when you read what we call the Old Testament apart from the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So if I'm going to take a course in the Hebrew Scriptures, and a rabbi is teaching it, I expect to get an understanding of, let us make man in our image, in light of what Jews believe the plural there to mean. That's Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? I want to know what the Jews think uh, about that. I want uh, to know what the Talmud says about that, okay? Uh, Old Testament is a whole different thing because you're looking at, let us make man in our image as the Trinity speaking and revealing uh, himself to us, okay? So it's just a pet peeve of mine, but We don't embrace the Hebrew Scriptures because the Hebrew Scriptures are void of interpreting it in light of Christ. Okay? I think studying the Hebrew Scriptures is fascinating. It's very informative, but it's different than a class in Old Testament. Is everyone following me? Does that make sense? So, um, please don't get up there someday and say I'm reading from the Hebrew Scriptures because I'll say, oh, Everyone, please, let's take a break from the Mass and let's listen to the Hebrew Scriptures apart from everything we know all about Jesus. Yeah, okay. Um. Well, it would. I, I think it would be really cool, actually, to go through many parts of the Old Testament and have, like, a, a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, tell us, what the Jews believe this to mean, and then we give it in light of Jesus. I'm doing the reading tomorrow. Would you like me
2: to do that? uh, You can approximate that, and it is very interesting. If you take um, um, the uh, Jewish Publication Society's uh, Jewish study Bible, their interpretation of the Tanakh, which... um, Contains an enormous amount of textual commentary on it, and lay that side by side with uh, one of our Bibles. Which take your pick. Yeah. Uh, with yeah, its commentary, you see, you can see some. Just you can see how vastly different they are. Yeah. Uh, anybody's written a parallel Bible like that? I wonder if
0: anyone has written a parallel Bible like that. Have you seen I know. Why don't you do it, and then we can say, you know. Susie Kenyon's on our staff. (laughs) Yeah, yep. Okay. Um, So the Apostolic Fathers are those fathers who um, wrote in the Apostolic Age. And so there's not too many of them, but you know who they are because you read your book, right? The Apostolic Fathers by Jack N. Sparks. And so you have um, Clement, Clement was, um, according to some, a bishop in Rome, and according to others, a presbyter in Rome. Um, uh, uh, I think, according to the Roman Catholic Church, he's the third bishop of Rome. I think Linus was the second bishop of Rome, but they had to get rid of him because he wouldn't leave his blanket. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Charlie Brown. Um, And uh, so, anyway, uh, and he's writing in 96 A.D. (laughs) And he's writing um, uh, at the same time that John is writing Revelation. And probably shortly after he wrote the Gospel according to St. John. He said, what should I name this Gospel? I think I'll call it the Gospel according to St. John. Okay, um... That's how early Clement is writing, which I always thought was pretty cool. Gives us incredible insight to the life of the early church from a a real center of the church, Rome, right? Um, And uh, what's what's his main theme? What's he dealing with? He's writing to Corinth, and there's a, a real problem in Corinth in that these young Turks, as he called them, have risen up and have uh, thrown out the, uh, the bishop and the priests. And he writes, and it's a wonderful treatise on what? If you can sum it up in, in, in two words. And the first word is church. First division. Well, he's speaking against uh, schism, right. But Authority. what? Authority. Yeah. yeah, church order. It gives us incredible insight to church order. Um, the, the next, it would be uh, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, which gives us incredible insight into several things. Number one, uh, the understanding of the sacraments. Particularly, Holy Eucharist and how important it is to the life of the church. He calls it the medicine of immortality, which I, I, I just love the medicine of immortality. He gives us incredible insight into the understanding of the incarnation and the relationship between an apostolic understanding between God, Jesus and God and Jesus, uh, in his human nature, being born of Mary. He gives us some early creeds. Um, He uh, references scripture everywhere. Um, But also, you can't read him without clearly receiving an understanding of the threefold order of ministry. Now that he's writing in 107 AD, Clement wrote 96 AD, he's writing in 107 AD, it really is the very end of the apostolic age. All the apostles have either died or John is the last one left and is about to die. And he clearly says now look, there is still a threefold order of ministry. And what, what is that threefold order? Bishops, priests, and deacons. Absolutely. And one would never presume, in fact, he says that it would be considered invalid to hold a Eucharist apart from whom? The bishop. Or one appointed that is ordained by the bishop. Okay, Gives us incredible insight to the threefold order of ministry as received from the Apostolic Age in the Holy Scriptures, gives us incredible insight into the belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, gives us incredible insight to church order, etc., uh, etc. Et All right. Um, and then you also have uh, Bar- um, Barnabas and the Didache. By the way, did anyone notice in the Didache that it addresses all the questions that are being dealt with to the, in, in this day and age regarding how to baptize? Whether it should be full immersion, whether or not if you use just a little water, whether it's valid or not. It's all there. And that people who are not baptized should not be receiving Holy Communion. Because you got to be born before you can be fed. Okay? Uh, Both, I think. Uh, Polycarp, yes, I forgot Polycarp, I'm sorry. Incredible moving testimony to the martyrdom of Polycarp. Wow. But did you notice that too, that they collected up his bones as if they were jewels and they uh, later would come back to celebrate the Eucharist on that spot? You're seeing from very early church, the apostolic age, the idea uh, of building churches on the very spot where people were martyred and that their relics were very important to them. And this does have a scriptural foundation in that uh, the bones of Elisha. Uh, What what are the bones of Elisha used uh, to do by God's power in the Old Testament? They do what? Bring a dead man back to life. And then the aprons and handkerchiefs of St. Paul are brought to the sick, and as many as they touch, the people are made what? Perfectly well. Perfectly well. Okay, this is the foundation. Now, was there later abuses of relics? Yes. Did they did they become magical charms in many ways? Yes. Should all that be avoided? Yes. There's enough pieces of the one true cross out there to build a cathedral. Okay. Um, how, however, saying that, There is a biblical and uh, um, apostolic way of understanding relics. Within the apostolic age, 33 A.D. to approximately 110, there is the age of the New Testament, which is 53 A.D. approximately, with one of the first letters being written by Paul, to 96 A.D. with the writings of John. By the way, except for Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament? Probably Luke. Luke, yeah, Yeah, Luke. All right. So, fifty-three A.D. to ninety-six A.D. is a uh, a, the New Testament era within the Apostolic Age. Saint Paul begins writing in approximately fifty-three A.D. St. Mark writes the first known gospel narrative in approximately 65 AD. Now, some people would say, say a little bit sooner, some would say a little bit later, so I'm giving you approximate dates. Now, St. Mark was not one of the twelve. However, he's writing, according to the early church fathers, in the name of one of the twelve, and this is why his gospel account is received as being apostolic. In whose name is he writing? Peter. Peter. Second Peter, 3:15 B through 17, mentions the writings of St. Paul and equates them to Holy Scripture. The only reference in the New Testament to some part of the New Testament being Scripture, by the way. 2 Peter 3, 15b, meaning the second part of 15, through 17. Does someone want to read that? 2 Peter three fifteen b to 17. Anyone who hasn't memorized want to? That's just a joke. 2 Peter... Chapter 3? 3, right. 15B to 17.
1: I know. So also, our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Uh, 15 through... 17. Speaking of this, he does in all his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand, which is the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do to other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware, lest you be carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. Yeah.
0: Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. And there's Peter, and he's referring to Paul's writings, saying, look, they're hard to understand, and some are mis- misinterpreting them. You know, And so we need the lens of the tradition to rightly interpret the scriptures. Okay. Canon means rule of divine faith. So we know what's apostolic today because we, we, what we teach is in continuity with what the church has taught in every age going back to the canon of scripture. Otherwise, if you just want to make arguments based on scripture, you can argue almost anything. I mean that piece that I read by the Jehovah's Witnesses is not unscholarly. I mean there are outright in some ways it is. They I mean they're, they they back up their argument um with some obscure things in in areas, but it's not written by someone who's not bright. I mean you could tell it's very well written. Okay. Um In fact, tomorrow's my last... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, um, you know what's interesting, though? Um, they, they told me this last time. They don't identify themselves as Christians. Christians are people who believe in the Incarnation and the Trinity. They are not Christians. And I said, well, at least we agree on one thing. <laughs> um All right, so the New Testament canon begins to take shape immediately in the 1st century and in the 2nd century. Okay. Canon does not take final shape, however, until the middle uh, of the 4th century. Disputed books, Hebrews, because it's authorship. Um, it wasn't because it was considered to be wrong in any way but because its authorship was in some doubt Jude 2nd 2 Peter 2nd 2 3rd John Revelation and 1st Clement the latter being dropped from the canon Hebrews Jude 2nd Peter 2nd and 3rd John Revelation and 1st Clement the latter being dropped, the others making the final cut. Revelation, for example, was called into question not because it was considered to reveal anything untrue, but because they were afraid that it would be misinterpreted by future generations. Thank God that hasn't happened. St. Athanasius, first to list the 27 books of the New Testament as we have them today done in 367 A.D. It's amazing. Although he's not the author of the Athanasian Creed, it's named for him because the the Athanasian Creed rightly articulates the teaching of Athanasius and it's written in his name. Um, He gives us the first list of the canonical list of the 27 books exactly as we have them today. And he also carried the day at the time as a deacon, but the spokesperson of his then bishop uh, at Nicaea uh, regarding the full divinity and, uh, of Jesus. I, I mean, his contribution is... No one's comparable, I don't think, uh, uh, apart from the writers of the New Testament and the Lord God Jesus himself... You know, I mean, Athanasius, I mean, you get the, the, the Nicene Creed, the, Athana, the theology of the Athanasius Creed, and the official list of the canon of Scripture. That's not bad. In fact, I didn't, be, you know, as a Christian, I didn't believe in reincarnation until I realized all that he had done, and then I realized who I used to be. Uh, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't remember. I don't remember. I was ho- hoping no one would ask. I know it's so short just throw it in there. No, I No, I, I don't remember. I don't remember why if it just didn't circle um, uh, as widely although it was a catholic epistle. So I'm not sure. I don't remember why. I'd have to look that up, Bob. I'm sorry. So much for being St. Athanasius in my last life. Huh? I always joke with people, as a Christian, I, of course I don't believe in reincarnation. Now, in my last life, I was a Buddhist, so then I did. Yeah. Thank you, Deacon Susie. And for those listening, that's a joke. I don't believe in reincarnation. Okay. Um, a council, here we go, a council, not an ecumenical council, a local council, a council held in Rome in 382 A.D. lists the official canon of the Old and New Testaments. And this was accepted east and west. Not as being an ecumenical council, but that list. The canon was chosen as upholding apostolic faith. So you have the apostolic faith, the canon of scripture, and then once it's established, everything subsequent to that has to be in continuity with the scriptures so that it's counted as apostolic. Chris? Can you just repeat the years that that council was held? 382. A council in Rome held in 382. It was a local council, but it listed it. Also, I just want to throw out here, we don't have time to get into all of this, but you cannot understand the New Testament, unless you understand the Old Testament. I have to admit, this is a real area of of weakness uh, for me. I did take Old Testament 1 and 2 in seminary. I passed, you'll be happy to know, and I moved on from there. This is not my area of strength, but I always kind of lamented that because I really do believe that unless you understand the Old Testament, that's why I really don't go to your study, because I'm afraid that my ignorance will come through. Um, the, uh, unless you really understand the Old Testament, you can't comprehend the, the New Testament. Um, also, unless you understand covenant, you won't be able to grab the New Testament. Unless you understand the Incarnation and look at it through that lens, you will not understand the New Testament. Also, you have to understand the Judaizers, okay? That's a a, a heretical belief that Gentiles had to first become Jews and accept the particular law of the Jews before they could accept the Messiah of the Jews, Jesus. And the Gnostics, those who uh, uh, denied the full humanity of, of Jesus and, and believe that uh, he was a divine spirit that entered into the, the uh, illusion of the created order. I would make the argument that it is significant. Now, there's uh, many people more intelligent than I who would disagree with me on this, but I I would say that when I read most of the early church fathers, the version of the uh, Old and New Testament that they're using is the Septuagint. I'd also argue that the writers of the New Testament themselves were using the Septuagint, like Matthew, for example, in, in quoting, A Virgin Shall Conceive. And so I would say that where the uh, the Greek and the Hebrew, particularly in the Old Testament, disagree, I actually would say that if you follow the principle, anyway, or practice of the patristic church, you would trump the Hebrew with the Greek. And the Eastern Orthodox Church goes so far, I believe this is true, to say that the version that is canonical is the Septuagint, not the Hebrew Scriptures, not the Scriptures. Old Testament in Hebrew. What did you just say? Trump that you said Hebrew, the Greek, or not? the Greek trumps the Hebrew. Yeah that's, what I mean. yeah, that's what I meant to say. I'm sorry if I said it wrongly. The structure
2: of the Old Testament is different between the two. I mean, the order in which the books are. Different.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and and again, boy, getting my mind around all that, I tried at one point, and I, I'm just not an Old Testament guy, but you're right, the order is different, and then, you know, the big dispute over the Apocrypha is another very big issue, and even if you accept the Apocrypha, uh, in the end, the exception and rejection of the Apocrypha in most Anglican circles as being canonical almost is a matter of semantics, in that it's, you know... Uh, you know, they either have a high view of it being just outside the canon or they have a low view of it within the canon. So they're, you you know, coming together there. Uh, I definitely lean towards that it's the Word of God, but it's the the lowest in the canon. Um, But, yeah, it gets problematic because in some Bibles, you find it in the English translations at the end of the Old and New Testament in most, you find it in the middle, in between the two, and uh, and then, of course, in Roman Catholic and in, uh, Orthodox Bibles, it's interspersed, and so it becomes, you know, to say that in one sense that the canon is universally accepted is a bit of a stretch, <laughs> because... Uh, While I would argue that uh, Anglicanism uh, in many ways does accept the Apocrypha or what I call deuterocanonical, extra canon, as being canonical, um, uh, there is some discrepancy there. Protestants uh, do not accept the uh, uh, Apocrypha as being uh, canonical in any full sense, Um, and the Eastern Orthodox um, does but considers it lowest within the canon, and Rome makes no distinction uh, of it. Um, And then the order of books, and even a couple of the books, vary a little bit. So even to this day, it's a simplification to say that there's a universal acceptance of what the canon is. Most of the problem, however, does deal with the deuterocanonical or apocryphal texts um, and uh, where their placement is and and so forth and so on. But there is difference. And I I do remember reading that there are some uh, in the Coptic churches, what's called the Oriental Orthodox Communion that still accepts First Clement as being canonical, so there, there still is some, you know. And I'm with them, uh, by the way. I I, 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 wish Ignatius was in there too, and we'd have a lot less fighting these in this day and age. But anyway, um, if you could
2: say uh, at least uh, you could specify what the canon doubtlessly
0: is. You- yes, it, good point, Bob. Good point, good point. Um, uh, but, uh, but anyway. As the bishop says, there it is. Um, Within the Apostolic Age, uh, a significant historic uh, event that took place is the destruction of the temple by the Romans uh, in 70 A.D. This also brings about really uh, a clear distinction between Christianity and Judaism. Prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., many considered christianity to be a sect of judaism okay a sect of judaism and its real final break came with 70 ad and the destruction of the temple and really the blaming of uh, of the destruction on the christians okay Prior to that, it was considered to be a sect of Judaism that uh, accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, 94 AD, Josephus, a Jewish historian, mentions Jesus in his second great work. 96 AD, St. John the Apostle writes the last books of the New Testament. Okay, let's uh, take a break, and then we'll come back in about five or uh, five minutes, and we will uh, look a little bit in, in a little bit more deeply at Saint Clement of Rome, who uh, who wrote First Clement in ninety six A.D. Now let's take a stretch.